If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity. I am the show's producer, Chris Gates, filling in for Kate and Alex here at the top. With something a little bit different for you this week, this week we are diving into Poshmark. If you haven't heard of Poshmark, it's an online platform for buying and selling clothes. Basically, it's a thrift shop for the 21st century. They're looking at doing an IPO in the next year, so we thought it would be a good time to introduce you to them. Kate was able to sit down with the CEO and one of the early funders and talk about the early days, the team, the challenges, and what is coming up next for them. Hope you enjoy. Kate and Alex will be back next week. Hello, I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, and I'm here today with the CEO and co-founder of Poshmark, Manish Chandra, and another special guest, early Poshmark investor, NFX's James Courier. Hello and welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So reports indicate that Poshmark is planned PO probably early next year. So we thought it'd be a great time to have you on. Give us some context on the company. Tell us a little bit about the very early days and hear from an early investor. I just want to start with talking about, like I said, the very beginning of Poshmark. You founded the company in 2011 with Tracy Sun. Can you tell us what was the initial idea and what the first iteration of the company looked like? So prior to Poshmark, I'd started a company called Caboodle, which was uh, a pioneer in the sort of the age of social shopping. And in fact, one of our first coverage was right here on TechCrunch in the very early days of TechCrunch. love to hear that. uh, Back in 05. And uh, the the idea sort of emanated from Caboodle, which was much more a social platform. And we really wanted to combine social platform with the ability to do transactions uh, and use it to really buy and sell stuff that you have, but also new stuff. The challenge in 08, 09, 09 is sort of when the idea first came together. There was no right good platform to do that. Late 10, when iPhone 4 arrived on the scene, uh, combined with a little app at that time called Instagram, which sort of gave us the idea of the filters, that triggered and re-triggered the idea of Poshmark. And that's how we started the Poshmark journey, which was to create a social marketplace, initially focused on fashion, but ultimately covering everything that expresses your style. Yeah, the first idea was mobile first. I mean, once you saw that iPhone 4, you realized, wait a minute, this is all going to go to mobile. And uh, when you came to my office at my house and we sat on the floor, you and Tracy making changes to your business plan as we went and we were kind of brainstorming, you were just adamant about it's going to be all mobile. Let's only do mobile. And at that time, that was that was a radical idea. It was a radical idea. In fact, uh, most of the investors uh, wanted us to create a website. And I was pretty adamant that we will only do mobile. So the first investor who jumped in um, with James was uh, Mayfield. Okay. And so Mayfield was sort of the one who believed in the, in the mobile area. And James, of course, was very much supportive of both mobile, but more importantly, social. Because the second bet we made, if you remember, James, was 100% social. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, we didn't even have a search bar in the first sort of year of the uh, product. Right. And we, were, we had been talking about social and commerce for a decade already, and no one had pulled it off. Yes. And so the question was, would the lowering of the friction with the photography of the, of the iPhone 4 and, and the Android copies, would those lower it enough so that this could all work on one platform? And now you guys have known each other for more than 15 years, right? So how yeah. did you meet in, in, in the first place? So um, in 2004, I created a, uh, a group focused on internet, special interest group on internet as part of the Indus Entrepreneur Group. And uh, 
I was trying to recruit sort of the best minds, and I connected with David Hornick and Reid Hoffman. And David, I think, first connected me and James, and we sort of instantly clicked, and James took me under his wing. They got a lot of the early mentorship. We were just recalling that one of the first executive offsite sessions for Caboodle was in the basement of his house. At that time, he lived in Tiburon. Yeah, we had a little moldy basement, and they came over, and we sat around and talked about Caboodle, which was a fantastic idea. It was basically Pinterest without the photos. I mean, it was using links instead of photos, and that was the only difference, really, I think, that kept it from being Pinterest. But, um, you know, Manish is this rare guy who had come out of uh, the enterprise space and yeah. decided to get into, into, into consumer. Almost nobody makes that transition, mentally, personality-wise, talent-wise. And he was making that transition in 2004 when we met, and, and he's managed to do it. It was brilliant. So how much was the early idea for Poshmark inspired by what you saw at Amazon and the success at Amazon? Uh, not much at all. It was really much more built on uh, sort of combining sort of where the world was with companies like eBay, Gill, and Facebook, and much more sort of my own journey with Caboodle. And Caboodle got acquired by Hearst, so I saw a lot of work that we were doing with magazines, and Caboodle was sort of this browsing magazine and we wanted to make the magazine shoppable, yeah. but at the same time have access to sort of massive inventory, which was also stored in people's closets. It was sort of a bunch of different ideas coming together. Uh, and then as we evolved the idea in 2011, uh, one of the core things we were going to do was to host live parties, which call them five at five parties. So we would invite women to bring five pieces of clothing at five o'clock, we'd serve them champagne and show them how to do listings and, and, and sell. And we did a couple of these. And uh, right around that time, there was a company, which I don't think even exists today, that came out called turntable.fm, which had these live DJ rooms and you'd walk around. Inspired that, I, by that, I thought we'll create, take this five at five into a virtual concept. And I first brought it to the team. Team was like, what the heck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And then working with Tracy and our SVP of community, Leanne, they started to hack Facebook and sort of use Facebook groups to create these parties because we didn't have that in our core platform. And, uh, and through that, we started to do these parties, which were initially done with just post-it nits, posted in the app and, and, and all of that. They were very successful. We saw a lot of listed activation. So by the time we launched, we had codified it into our platform. And today, we host four of them. They're virtual posh parties. And in fact, the evening posh parties are so big, typically they have 3 million live listings in that party. Interesting. So you guys both mentioned um, Pinterest and Instagram separately, and uh, neither of those are competitors to Poshmark, but they certainly could have been had they maybe integrated shopping capabilities earlier on. I'm curious, as someone who's watched them grow, if you thought that Instagram would have expanded into shopping and Pinterest as well um, earlier on. I, I think um, when you talk about shopping, it has many different dimensions. So, so I think they are both into shopping in the sense they're very much into the discovery phase, but taking it from discovery to transaction, to shipping, to transaction completion, to handling the full life cycle where commerce really happens is much harder. And similarly, you've had commerce platforms like Amazon has tried to slap an Instagram-like feed and eBay has been trying to do. It's much harder to go from being a shopping site to becoming a full social mm -hmm. site. We started trying to solve both of those problems day one. And it yeah. was hard, as James remembered. Yeah, it, it, this was the really hard pull these guys made because the mindset for commerce is very different from the mindset from social. And you know, I've started four venture-backed companies, invested 130, and I cannot tell you a company that is more like they said they'd be on day one than they are, uh, you know, eight years later than this one. There was a, a commitment to that combination of social and commerce, and without that commitment to both at day one, 
They never would have built the DNA. They never would have built the people or the culture to be able to pull it off. And so you would have expected, uh, particularly Pinterest, to get more into commerce faster. Yeah. And you've seen House get into commerce mm-hmm. out of their social. Um, and But it hasn't necessarily been that successful. It's hard to do. And that's why I think Pinterest did it so late and isn't, isn't doing super well in that area. It's a whole different mindset. So why was there a focus on um, secondhand? So ultimately, we wanted to solve several problems. We wanted to solve the scalability of fashion. We wanted to eliminate the massive base that sits in every closet. I mean, there's more than a trillion dollars worth of inventory that sits in our closet that's created every three to four years in our country. Uh, and, and forget about the world. It's like almost three or four times that much. And we wanted to make it really fun for people to participate in this world of commerce. And those three things ultimately lead to a massive opportunity where people can buy and sell not just used clothing, but new stuff. They can create their own brand. So today what you see on Poshmark is we have over 5 million sellers, Mm. 50 million users. At any given point in time, we have 75 million items for sale. And they span used stuff, luxury uh, they span sort of new brands that people have created, as well as people who are carrying inventory on behalf of other brands into the platform. But what's universal around all of them is that with every item, there's a human being attached to it, which is something if you go back 40 years in our country, you would walk into a store, there would actually be a human being who would say, hey, Manish, here's a hammer for you because I know you're building your deck and I just sourced this hammer mm-hmm. for you. Or here's a shirt for you, James, because I know you're going to your brother's wedding. That thing went away, first with department stores and then the advent of commerce. What we've done is really brought that back, but with the help of technology, made it very scalable. And that's why you have 5 million people who are selling on the platform. The other thing which does is shopping inherently is a social activity. We've made it sort of very dull and very siloed. And so because of the engagement, because of sort of the mixture of social and shopping, we have this other phenomenon where our average active user spends 23 to 27 minutes a day on the platform, which is the same level of scale. Uh, but at the same time, they're hyper-engaged consumers. So we think of ourselves as sitting at this intersection of resale and social, mm-hmm. and social commerce in particular. And as both of these phenomena are exploding, we are seeing our growth and our potential expanding. And so there's been two things we've done this year. Is one is broaden beyond fashion into home decor. We just launched it, which is growing fast. And then also broaden outside U.S., which is where we've been for nine years, and launched into Canada. And we see international growing extremely fast as well. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about early on was that people have real strong emotional attachments to the clothes they already own. And so those objects actually lend people to be more in a social space than mm. some of the you know, fancier, newer things. And so that was a, a really fertile soil and, 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 and objects, basically. And sometimes we talk about social objects as, as digital form, but these are actually physical social objects that people are exchanging between each other that they have an emotional attachment to. So not only... Is there a salesman selling you the, the salesperson, a saleswoman in this case, selling you um, uh, her object, but her personality goes with it. And that yeah. makes the whole thing social. So actually yeah. used clothes was a good place to really combine social and commerce. Now you said 5 million users? Sellers and Sellers. 50 million users. Okay, 50 million users. So tell me, um, are they majority U.S., Canada, or have you launched abroad and is it being used abroad? So the 5 million are actually 100% in U.S. Okay. The Canada is a very small number right now. It's gotcha. going very fast. We launched Canada only on June 1st of this year. So okay. we're only three and a half months into that country. Uh, but it's, it's growing very fast. The, the interesting thing um, for us is that we took almost every single point of friction in selling out of the seller's experience. So... 
when you think of selling, you think of, you know, how do I merchandise? How do I catalog? How do I accept payments? How do I ship this item? How do I accept returns? How do I deal with chargeback? How do I deal with any of these pieces? All of that is subsumed by the platform. Uh, and there's no sort of fixed fees to use the platform. So what ends up happening is that anybody, let's say you wanted to sell something and take a few photos and instantly the item is listed. Mm-hmm. When you actually sell it, we send you a shipping label, you use that to ship. And the shipping label is independent of the size and weight and any of that uh, in the product. So what it allows you to do is shopping, selling, and buying feels almost like a social experience. You're just taking a few photos, you're talking about the clothes, and, and you're engaging. Uh, underneath the platform, we built a very active community as well, where people are dramatically engaged with each other. Mm-hmm. We have hundreds of physical events that happen on the platform. We hope in life, posh parties. Uh, we have Posh Fest, which is our annual conference coming up uh, in a few, few days, actually, next weekend, not this weekend, but the following weekend. Uh, and the first Posh Fest, which we hosted in 2013, uh, six years back, had 150, 160 people. This year, we have 1,600 people flying in from across the country together. Uh, and they'll support each other. They'll learn from each other. They'll come up with mm-hmm. new techniques. And that's sort of, I think, also very foundational is it isn't just a selling platform. It's a lively community of people who are connected to each other. Yeah. And, th- and that also goes toward the network effect. That, that you talked about and we talked about at the beginning about, you know, do we have to do everything for people or can we get the community and get the people who are on the platform to do other things for people to add value to them, to give them yeah. what they're looking for emotionally and psychologically. And by building, by paying as much attention to those features on the screen, those features in the product, as well as the commerce experience, that's what allows it to really build that network effect. And looping back to talking about just your, your sellers and your members, um, why did you take so long to launch in Canada and to not, not launch overseas? Or why haven't you launched overseas yet? Uh, so for us, the focus was really to make sure that we are able to scale for the core community. So we did the, because we are tackling such hard problems, we were doing mobile, social, full commerce stack built from the grounds up, mm-hmm. shipping, logistics, payments, all of that sort of in our platform. Yeah. So, uh, so all of that took, took a while. And then Posh Party Innovation creates very high concurrency, highly distributed architecture where you're buying and selling simultaneously with massive concurrency problems. So it's kind of took on some of the live TV viewership problems as well. So all of those things took time to solve. And then as we started to scale the platform, we wanted to make sure our experience on the fashion was, was perfect. So we first did it for women. We launched men and kids a couple of years back. And as we started to see that scale, we just said, you know, let's try it out in other countries, see what happens. And the success we are seeing in Canada allows us to then scale the experience to multiple countries mm-hmm. and start to connect them together. So we really want to create the best-in-class experience. And at the same time, because of the space we are in, because of sort of the place we are in, we feel we have unbounded possibility and unbounded sort of uh, growth potential. So it, just from what I've you know, seen of Poshmark, most of the products are under $100. Is that correct? Uh, it's a significant number of volume, but okay. in terms of dollar volumes, we sell a tremendous amount of luxury as well. So with the luxury items, I'm curious, um, do you authenticate the items before they're delivered to the customer? Yeah. So any item that's $500 or higher, first okay. gets shipped to our authentication center. We authenticate it and then ship it to the shopper. Uh, and for all the other items, there's actually a built-in buyer and seller protection. So okay. by the time we ask the seller to ship the item, we give them the label, they ship the item to the buyer. We don't release the payment to the seller till the buyer has actually accepted the item. And we don't ask the seller to ship till the buyer has submitted the payment. So we make sure that both sides of the equation are protected. And the result is that our loyalty uh, from our users and our seller base is incredible. Every single cohort we have has been positively growing. 
uh, on the platform. Uh, and some of the reasons are in the platform, some of the reasons are in the transaction, but some of the reasons is also the partnership we built with them. So from day one, we created a single transparent partnership where there is nothing hidden in the plat platform. So from day one, we said, hey, sellers, you and I are in a business together. We're going to help you do everything. And in return, you take 80% of every transaction. We keep 20% of the transaction. And mm -hmm. that partnership has not changed in eight years. Uh, and then the second thing we wanted to do was to offer a simple shipping and payment system. So payment, et cetera, everything is included in that, in that price. The only thing that's not included is shipping, and the shipping is always paid for the buyer. It's always two-day priority, and it is something that we priced in 2012 at $7 a package, and today it's actually slightly less than $7 a package. So we continue to sort of serve and create that partnership which is very antithetical to many marketplaces, which continue to sort of change their pricing on the customers, at right. fees, et cetera. None of that has happened in Poshmark in seven plus years. Hey everyone, don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. So going back to these, these early days, it sounds like one of the big challenges was just the fact that you were mobile first and there was some skepticism around that. But that aside, what was what was the biggest challenge um, in just getting the company off the ground? I think uh, there's sort of several dimensions. First is just getting the team together. So when you think of um, any company, any business, it's all about getting the right people in and around the company, convincing a group of co-founders. So you know, I was lucky enough to get my technology and sort of product co-founders, Gautam and Chetan, who had partnered with me in the Kabootle days. Mayfield introduced me to Tracy, so I connect with Tracy. Was lucky enough to have James as a partner, uh, Mayfield, Inventus, uh, Uncore Capital, Jeff Clavier. Mm -hmm. And so, so we got a really good team of people together. Uh, and then the second dimension is, you know, how do you sort of get the word out? And uh, that, for us initially, was very much about making sure that the product experience is right. So we were one of those companies that was almost anti-growth and focused very much on the user experience in the first days. We had maybe a thousand users the one year after we started, but 90% that were participating in the platform and, and spending that 23 to 27 minutes a day on the platform. So that was sort of the second key for us. And then the third thing was then how do you grow at each stage? And maybe James, you can give your perspective on growth and I'll share a little <coughs> bit of growth stages on Poshmark. Yeah, one of, the, <clears throat> one of the things we talked about early on is that, and what we continue to emphasize is just Growing these companies needs to be changing on a constant basis. Every six months, every 12 months, you need to be changing how you grow, the channels that you're mm -hmm. addressing, how you approach it, what language you're using, the, the, the target market you're going after. And it's never something that you can rest on. And uh, that feels kind of scary when you're starting a 10, 12, 15-year journey that, hey, wow, I can never rest. I have to be like the shrew. I have to be constantly moving to find my next seed, my next food. But that's, but that's the case. And so... Um, you know, one of the things we talked about and, and, and also continue to is, is this idea of fundamental growth. Instead of growth hacking, you look at, you know, something like reducing the friction on the shipping, right? The, the amount of growth that that released at that time when, when that was finally achieved with the U.S. Postal Service was dramatic. And no one would ever have thought of that as a growth hack. Or a mm -hmm. growth, but, but reducing that friction and making it so easy made a huge impact and continues to um, on, on the company. And so... We, we looked at every aspect, the name of the company, um, you know, the number of buttons that they had to, to show affection or love or thanks to other people, the ways that they could go viral to, to grab more people, uh, the way they were incentivized or not to, to grab more people onto the platform. Um, you know, how easy was it to become a seller versus 
how much of a hurdle do you want to make? You don't want people coming in too easily because then they're not committed to the platform and mm-hmm. then they churn out and they have a bad experience. So all those things have to be balanced throughout every year in a different way because the company's in a different place. And so you're constantly flying and adjusting the plane. And there have been so many venture-backed companies in this space, and most of them have fallen away because flying this plane is very difficult. I, I think one of the challenges, uh, and, and you know, we talk about that, is making this model work when you're not touching the inventory constantly. So you see a lot of players who've survived. They're actually taking inventory, storing it in warehouses, mm-hmm. authenticating every item. Uh, whereas, you know, we authenticate the luxury items, bulk of the items go straight from buyer to seller. And to, to create a consistent experience there takes a lot of effort. You know, whether it's, it's not just about sort of one dimension, it's about all of the different dimensions. So one is the whole commerce stack, whether it's payments or shipping or all of those pieces. But the second dimension is very much the social dimension. We're probably the only platform where every seller actively spends a third to half their time promoting other sellers. I don't think there's any other marketplace where people actively do that. Now, some of it was intentional. Some of it is serendipity. We created this engine where you have to curate items in order for people to discover those items because every seller has a following and you curate the items. Well, if you only keep curating your items, then you're never going to have more followers or more discovery. So it's in your best interest to curate other people's items, not just to get more followers, but also to show your style and to get your followers to get more engaging content. That allows sellers to engage with each other, and we call our seller, seller stylist. And that sort of fascinating back and forth dynamic was very core to creating the powerful community we have. We did it initially for curation. Serendipity was it created a beautiful form of seller engagement mm-hmm. and community creation where everyone uplifts together. Nobody grows alone. And because the business we are in is, you know, we're trying to replace trillions of dollars of, of, uh, of dollars that flow into sort of landfill and other things with actual sort of recirculation and, and a new way of sort of shopping, um, there's almost unbounded potential. And one of our core values is focus on love and money follows, which is really about continuing to support each other in a beautiful way. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just going back to the beginning of the journey and talking about people. At each stage in the business, there's a lot of challenges. So when we were just starting the company, um, you know, there were some specific people challenges we ran yeah. into. And uh, one of the things that I found amazing is that our lead investor, Mayfield, at that point in time, was actually one of the few ones who was willing to back us through that people transition and change. Uh, what was that people transition? We, we had, you know, we were co-founders and there was sort of one of the, the folks that we sort of had, you know, we had to kind of change direction. And, you lost uh, a co-founder early one on. Of, one of the co-founders, early co-founders. And, uh, you know, we're, we're friends and stuff, but it was just not the right thing. And it happened very early mm-hmm. in the journey. So it was, it was there. And, and we had the team to kind of take forward. So Gotham, Chetan, and Tracy, we we're all here together, uh, yeah. even today. Uh, so the investor, you know, especially Mayfield, to support us through that journey was very critical. And that goes back to the people you surround yourself have to believe in your mission, have to believe in the vision. Uh, and ultimately, for me, you know, one of the things that I take a lot of pride in is uh, it's not as much about numbers, but that bulk of our team is still here from the early days. So in the first year, two years, I think till 2013, we recruited maybe 30, 40 people. Every single one of them is here. Three mm-hmm. of them left and we re-recruited them back mm. into the company. Uh, all of my investors are here. They've supported us through every single round. And so um, that to me is one of the big sort of achievements, but it's almost, I think, foundational is if you surround yourself with the mm-hmm. right people, they help you grow at each stage. Yeah, one of the things is that Navin at, at Mayfield is, is, is what we call battle-tested, 
right? And and having done caboodle and 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 other things, you also were battle tested coming into this. And uh, and same same with Jeff Clavier, you know, and 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 myself, and you know, to to go into the Poshmark office now and see people that have been there for now eight years and just all the hugs around, it's really really cool. It's a good good feeling. Um, I do want to talk more about VC funding, so I'm gonna just state some numbers. So tell me if if they're incorrect. But um, you guys have raised um a total of 160 million in venture capital funding. Yep. Okay. So and um, when was the last round that you raised? The last round really was in 2017. Okay. led that round. Okay. And um, uh, valuation was 625 million. Is that correct? We haven't confirmed a valuation. Okay. So roughly 160 million at just the 625 is uh, according to PitchBook data, but um, certainly sizable valuation. Um, was Temasek, uh, was that the first round that you did with Temasek? Yes. Okay. And they're typically a late stage growth investor. Correct. Okay. And can you state some of your other investors that you've had besides Mayfield and obviously James? Uh, yeah, so um, we've had Menlo uh, from Menlo did our Series B, uh, okay. GGV led our Series uh, C, and um, the other key investors we have is Inventus. So Inventus was started by Kanwal Reiki, who was actually my board member in the Caboodle days, and they have been very supportive through each of the generation. Uh, Uncork Capital, Jeff Clavier. Jeff was back in the Caboodle days. He's the one who took me into the TechCrunch offices for our very first uh, article awesome. on Caboodle with Michael Arrington. Uh, <laughs> and um, Ron Conway. Uh, mm-hmm. And SV Angel have been supportive. Um, Asha out of Stanford has been very supportive of the company at various stages. Uh, Patrick of Union Grove. Um, so we've we've had some really amazing both angels and, you know, major sort of Silicon Valley yeah. investors and now late grade growth investors as well. I do want to talk too more about just how the ecosystem has changed. I know we talked a little about competitors, but not even just competitors. I mean, there are things like the real real, which is different in that it's solely luxury goods, right? So it's very expensive items that... Um, are sold not only online, but also now they have brick and mortar stores. Um, so that's an interesting development. Um, there's also things like StockX and Goat, which I don't think were around, you know, back when you started. Poshmark, which focus on shoes. So similarly selling um, used shoes online. So what, what are your thoughts in general, just how much change has happened? It's it's really crazy. I If you would have asked me five years back, you know, what the industry would look like, I, I, you know, I felt like we were on a winning streak and we would be fairly big. I wouldn't have expected the industry to become this big and start to transform. And I think it's reflective of two things. It's reflective of where the consumer is today. And we were just talking about it coming in here is, I think, uh, you know, I have, I have a son who's 24 and a daughter who's 20. And uh, when you talk to them, the way that they consume products is very different. You know, uh, yeah. when you start, when they think of driving, they think of neither of them own a car or even want to drive a car. Uh, they don't want to stay in traditional hotels. You know, they stay in Airbnb. Uh, they buy half their clothes in sort of, uh, you know, things like Poshmark, et cetera, out there. And, and so is their peer groups. So I feel like the consumption has changed pretty dramatically where people are much more have sort of a different relationship with products, goods, and services. And I think there's a second phenomena which is less talked about, which is the war- power of social media and how it impacts fashion, style, and clothing, both in accelerating consumption and in also uh, accelerating obsolescence of what you have. And so that also creates this acceleration of how fast goods and services are moving. So those drivers have been very, very powerful. And then the third thing, which is completely unrelated to consumer, is a broader industrial trend, which is maybe a reflection, maybe a cause, is where retail is going and how sort of fast retail is changing, where stores are getting destroyed and brands are changing and and transforming. So I think all of that is accelerating the growth of this whole area. And uh, we're both driving it and benefiting from it. 
And who do you see as your greatest competitor in the space? I think uh, the way we kind of think about it is uh, the competition is likely going to come more from social platforms than from yeah. traditional commerce platforms for us. Like Instagram. Uh, but any, any of the large social platforms mm-hmm. can, can take it uh, in this direction. And the reason I say that is the, the kind of architecture we've created, sort of the way people discover and buy product, is less just about commerce and much more about social. But pure social can't do it. You also need the full commerce stack. So it's really the two things coming yeah. together. Uh, and that's why we sort of have a second core value, which is embrace your weirdness. And I always feel that to win, you have to focus on your core strength and stay away from just looking around and following other people's strength. And our strength is really this intense focus on commerce, but through people. And it's always, you know, where we look at any idea, look at any business problem, look at anything, it always comes back to focusing on people, which is our community, our team, and our seller stylists. Have you guys leveraged the power of influencers much? Like, I mean, nowadays, obviously, Instagram is jam-packed with influencers, people with a lot of following. And because Poshmark is set up the way it is, there are people who have probably become influencers themselves on Poshmark. So can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Influencers are very core to the growth. Um, But the way we think about influencers, uh, we think about an authentic influencer. We don't think about just sort of an influencer as a casual uh, experience. And you rightfully said that there are many people on Poshmark who are who've become influencers, not just on Poshmark, but transcended that. They have huge following on both Poshmark or platforms like Instagram and YouTube, or people who were on YouTube have now huge followings on Poshmark. So we have this cross-pollination. And what we do is we work with them in different ways. You know, We have our own Posh Ambassador program where we sort of recognize people and empower them in very different ways. We have a Posh Affiliate program where people can uh, sort of uh, have a more monetization-oriented partnership with Poshmark. So we definitely think of influencers as something really, really important. Yeah. What we don't uh, focus on is uh, influencers who don't have an authentic connection mm-hmm. to our product, to our platform, to our brand. That has not worked for us. We've tried that in the past, and that sort of doesn't resonate well with us, doesn't resonate with, with our community, and never sort of has worked for us. <clears throat> Recently, we um, requested and had Serena Williams join our board of directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, part of the reason why we connected is because she has a truly authentic uh, connection to not just a brand in our community uh, and the level of sort of mindset and service she mm-hmm. provides to our community is very key. And that was very impressive to me and sort of very core in terms of why uh, we had yeah. uh, around the board. And that's really important. Do you have a sense of how many people use the platform casually to actually sell their own stuff or people who actually go out and buy things at thrift stores and then sell it for more on Poshmark? We have both. And we also have people who buy structured inventory. We have uh, several hundred people who've created our own new kind of fashion brands. So we have uh, brands like Motomi Couture, Infinite Wood, uh, doing seven figures in sales. Uh, bulk of the people are really working on their closet and reselling it. And right. from there, you sort of go and start to source inventory in various ways, thrift stores, you know, work with consignment and work with other people. And then many of them go on and create their own boutique and fashion brands. And now what these guys are doing is that we've given them a way for also creating a wholesale brand where they're appointing new seller stylists who are distributing on the platform on their behalf. So it's a fairly lively ecosystem of retail and resale coming together in various ways. And we yeah. really keep no constraints. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many brands come out of Poshmark because it makes me think of, was it Nasty Gal? Which began yes. as like an eBay store. eBay store, yep. yeah. And she, you know, she ultimately created a huge business. Didn't go terribly well in the end, but was kind of an interesting origin story. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, you know, there's a playbook related to these platform network effects where you create the platform. Mm-hmm. These these uh, entrepreneurs can now build things using the platform that they can't build and distribute any other way. 
and they become part and parcel of the system itself, which reinforces the different layers of the ecosystem, keep everyone there, keep everyone engaged, give more value. Which is funny that you say part and parcel because that woman who was at Poshmark started a company called Part and Parcel. She was long years at Poshmark, right? Um, yeah. So Lauren, Lauren actually helped yeah. us create our entire wholesale platform. Uh, and she was one of the um, early sort of uh, employees at Poshmark. Uh, and uh, she's doing amazing work at Part and Parcel. Mm-hmm. I'm an investor and an advisor to her. And she's, she's just an amazing entrepreneur. So you mentioned network effects, which is um, what NFX specializes in companies with network effects. But can you explain? I think um, there's probably a straightforward answer why NFX isn't an investor in Poshmark. Uh, we didn't have a fund until two years That's, ago. Yeah. So you guys are new fund and you focus early stage? We do. We're a seed investor. We invest one to three million in companies right. over the last 24 months. So perhaps had Poshmark been founded maybe a decade later? No doubt. Um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So moving on, um, I don't know what you can disclose, but um, from what I've read, uh, Poshmark had po- pulled in roughly $140 million in revenue in 2018. Is that something you can verify? Uh, we, we don't talk about revenues or valuation. Is there, are there any numbers around just growth in the past few years that you can share? Um, sure. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about is just the sheer growth in our community and seller stylist. So uh, when you talk about sort of uh, the key metrics around the platform that we have talked about is we have 50 million users in our community, uh, which is growing very fast. We have 5 million seller stylists and uh, we have at any given point in time, 75 plus million items per sale. Uh, and, uh, and the business continues to sort of grow in different dimensions. We talk about sales, we talk about community, but the one dimension that is consistent is the level of engagement or love yeah. that the community have, which is uh, 23 to 27 minutes um, a day that our, our community spends. Uh, another way to think about it is how people are, um, you know, scaling and using the platform. So, for example, one of the things we talked about is how many different sellers are distributed through the uh, country. So we cover 85% of the zip codes in the country in terms of the seller coverage. So it isn't just the big metros. They're really distributed in every county, in every sort of area uh, of the country. And quite often I do this test with someone. I say, you know, name the smallest town you visited in, the, uh, in America and then pull in the number of sellers who are selling actively and they'll recognize a few faces because they actually know many people in that community. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there, there are more sellers on Poshmark than all the other platforms combined or something. Uber, yeah, yeah. Uber I mean, if you, Lyft, if you just think of uh, how many people have activated and are starting on Poshmark, you look at drivers and hosts and other things and you add them all together and we have more sellers in the United States than they all combined. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, you need a car or a house and that's something that some people have. Yeah. But a closet is something I think all of us need in modern day. You know? Certainly. Um, so we talked about the ecosystem, but I'm also curious, like there's also, there's been the rise of things like direct consumer in the last few years too. There's been the emergence of all these micro brands, socially native brands. Has that fueled Poshmark's growth at all? Has it detracted from it? What do you think? I feel like it's fueled our growth. I think uh, the ability for a person to directly connect with an audience and then also mm-hmm. be able to sell them products is something that, you know, we were right there at the cusp of creating yeah. that. Uh, so when we think of our seller stylists, we don't just think of them as seller stylists. They're actually individual brands. Like people follow a specific person on the platform and they buy mm-hmm. anything they post on the platform. And that sort of connection uh, and, and that repeat sort of engagement where 75, 80% of the transactions come from repeat shoppers uh, is very core. And it allows people to build a long lasting business. When you think of stores, you think of repeat traffic. When you think of Poshmark, you think of repeat buyers from the same seller. Uh, and that's very, very core to to creating something scalable. Uh, I think part of it is that 
when people connect with people, they find things that they can relate to. There was a recent interview where uh, some attorney in Midwest who's uh, big and tall was talking about how she found three or four sellers on Poshmark and she repeatedly shops on them because they match her body type and, you know, kind of yeah. have all these amazing things that they can they like uh, her style for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the phases, you know, originally when we have websites, people could try to create retail websites and then we got Shopify and they sort of managed a lot of that tech for people. Right. Well, the next stage is, is really Poshmark where they've not only managed the tech, but they're managing the, the, the selling for you because they curate the, the network of people who might buy. And so, you know, right now these, these folks on the platform are able to build their own personal brands easier than they're able to build the brand of their product. But once they build the personal brand, that's an interim step to then launching a brand name. And so this is sort of the third, the third retail wave. And it sounds like you have built most, a lot of your own tech, but what are some of the companies that you rely on to, to sort of keep Poshmark up and running? Um, so we have, you know, we use Amazon Web Services. Uh, we use MongoDB. Uh, we use Redis. Those are sort of our foundational layers. Uh, we've used uh, Looker and Redshift for our data analytics. Um, so we, we have sort of some of the core components, but mm-hmm. in terms of construction, uh, it's a fully sort of native stack that we build. Uh, and we've, um, you know, really build everything from, you know, whether it's payments or orders or shopping cart or shipping, all of that yeah. natively, because it's very different when you build it for social commerce than traditional commerce. And then as far as the engagement, 23 to 27 minutes, I mean, I don't know, I'm no expert in that, but it seems like quite a lot of engagement. I think I use Twitter like an hour and 15 minutes a day. So I guess <laughs> in comparison to that, I mean, that's, that's nothing to scoff at. It's a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is very much uh, like a social platform. And part of it is that, for many people, this is sort of their core engagement. This is where they spend their time uh, and they, they engage with it. And it also kind of recognizes how shopping is inherently a social activity. It's, it's really fun to be able to look at things and, and browse. And, you know, these shoes I'm wearing, I would never found them except for Poshmark, which is, you know, it's a unique yeah. kind of uh, product. And that's part of the fascination is finding something unique, finding people that you like, finding brands you can finding things at a good price. There's a lot of different ways in which people uh, engage with the platform. And because it's visual, it's simple, uh, it's on phone. And I think phone and mobile has increased our consumption of content as well, mm-hmm. uh, as Apple is now telling us based on our feedback. Right. You know, how much time are we spending exactly. on these apps? Um, but yeah, and I, I think uh, what, what for us has been uh, amazing to see is how community has connected with each other and finds joy in the journey around Poshmark. Yeah, and I remember one of the early things that we discovered um, the sort of the eureka moment, sort of six months in when we did that, that mm-hmm. query and it said 70% of the people who are buyers are also sellers. Sellers. It's not true anymore, yeah. but for the first three years, that was really the community. Yeah. It was incredible. I haven't seen a marketplace platform like that ever. It, uh, what percentage of your wardrobe would you say is from Poshmark? Today? Yeah. 80%. And uh, I probably buy 90 plus percent from Poshmark today. So I'm wearing almost everything from Poshmark. Nice, nice. Brand loyalty. Um, before we close out, I want to ask um, what tips you have for entrepreneurs that are listening for starting a successful business. I'm sure you're asked that frequently. So Sure. Um, for me, it's like really three things, boiled down to three things. One is focus on people. I think your team, your investors, beyond money, beyond sort of skills, you need to make sure these are the people you want to be with for a long period of time. It's, it's a platitude, but it's, I can't emphasize it more than anything else. Yeah. So I think for people is, is very core. I think the second thing is anything you build um, should have sort of some clarity in terms of who you are serving, who it's focused on. 
And if you're not building something to serve someone, then why are you in that business anyway? Uh, and third thing is, it costs nothing to think big. So don't think small. One of the favorite stories I talk about is, you know, somebody looked at a cup of coffee and thought of a coffee cart. Somebody looked at a cup of coffee and thought of a series of coffee shops. But somebody looked at that coffee and thought of a whole Starbucks. Be the Starbucks, not the coffee cup. That's great advice. And for you, what advice do you have? Same question. I mean, spotting, you know, yeah, I mean, like um, obviously, uh, the first thing is the people. And, and the way I always say it to people is when they walk in the room, you should light up, right? If you're going to be working with somebody for 7, 12, 15 years and, uh, and just living in fear and living in, in happiness, they need to be with people who light you up when they walk in the room. That's really the test. Um, and then the second thing is I, I wouldn't start a business without focusing on how could this be defensible. It's so competitive out there now. There's so many venture firms. There's so many startups. It costs you nothing to, to come up with a business plan that has a network effect and it that could actually be defensible and turn into something meaningful and impactful. Um, and then, and then the last thing is, um, you know, don't always um, adhere to the exact thing you had in the first day. Manish is the only guy who's pretty much adhered to the exact thing you had on the first day that I know. Everybody else I've worked with, you need to be curious about yeah. different customers, different products, different channels. The first idea you had was unlikely to be your last. Finally, what can you tell us about um, Poshmark's IPO plans? Uh, we continue to look for new sources of financing. We continue to look at different uh, areas of growth, um, but no comment on that. Fair enough. All right. Well, well, thank you guys both for joining us today. And I hope all you listeners enjoyed our interview. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.